the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, Fantasy Without Borders, because it went condo, and is now fought with magic swords that run on AAA batteries and dragon sneezes. And a reminder, this February 14th, give your beloved a valentine with a tight shot grouping. Plus, we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Editor Tony Daniel. And I'm Bain Editorial Assistant Christopher Rocchio. Good to have you back, Christopher. Oh, thank you, Tony. Christopher, this time we have an interview with legendary science fiction author and editor Ben Bova, as you know, because you sat in on it when we made it yesterday. We're actually doing three volumes of all of Ben's short stories, and volume one is out this month. It's called The Best of Bova. Um, so we're going to talk about a bunch of the great stories with Ben in Volume 1. And something about, um, you know, Ben's background. Did you know some of the stuff he had talked about? Uh, only a very little bit of it. Yeah. Um, he was the analog. He was the editor after John W. Campbell at Analog. That um, was what I knew. Everything else was uh, was news to me. Yeah. And the first fiction editor at, uh, at Omni, as well as book editor someplace <laughs> i don't know he, he's done a lot and uh that's he he won hugo's for that and then he uh he was a writer the whole time and writing the, these wonderful stories you know, six uh, hugo's wasn't it yeah six hugo's for an editor and then um his uh his novels like the uh great grand tour series and many other uh great bova novels including mars incorporated which we recently put out and um his collaboration with Les Johnson, uh, Rescue Mode, which was also recently out from Bain. And we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky. Now, here's the news. Hey, we have new free fiction and nonfiction up on the Bain.com website, or we will in a couple of days. This time we have two, count them two, great short stories for your reading pleasure. These are both set in the worlds, or in the case of Reich Spore, the multiverse, of books that are coming out from their respective authors in March. And they will be out as ebooks next week, too, by the way. So uh, tell us about uh, Reich's story, will you, Christopher? Well, Reich Spore delivers a big old honking novella set in the multiverse of his Balanced Swords saga that includes epic fantasy entries Phoenix Rising, Phoenix in Shadow, and now the series finale, Phoenix Ascendant. That's the one that'll be out next month. Absolutely. Yeah. The story at Bane.com is interesting because it doesn't seem at first to be set in the Balanced Sword universe at all. It starts out an hour present. This one is a mystery where young Xavier Ross, who becomes quite a force in the Phoenix books, must solve the murder of his brother, a photojournalist, and the solution will lead him to a most unlikely place. And since it's part of an epic fantasy universe, you might be able to guess where that is. It's a really great crossover story. That one is called Training and Truth. Xavier is a, is a really cool character as he develops in uh, as, as a magic user of of a great force in um, Phoenix in the Phoenix books. So this is kind of an origin story for him. Also free at Bain.com website is a very good story by debut novelist Sonia Oren Lyris. Sonia's story is set within the world of her new fantasy epic. Yes, that's another uh, great new fantasy epic out in March. We got two. This one is called The Seer, Sonia's. Now, I hatched this book from a young'un as an editor, and I highly recommend it. Uh, you can get a taste of the world that Sonya has built in the story Touchstone. But I, I really highly recommend The Seer. We'll be talking to Sonya about it, but um, just uh, check that book out. It's got so much cool stuff in it, including one of my favorite scenes, maybe in any fantasy novel I've read, which is there's this fight between an expert assassin and a little girl who can foresee exactly what the assassin's going to do next. She's the seer in the, in the book. 
It's like an irresistible force meeting an immovable object. It's a it's a great scene. It's a great book. Really highly recommend that and the story Touchstone. Uh, what about the nonfiction, Chris? Well, also at Bain.com is our monthly free nonfiction. This time we have an article by our favorite neurobiologist, Dr. Ted Roberts. Since there is a great deal of talk these days about how different groups of people are wired differently, so much so that some people build their identity around their alleged baked-in mental makeup, so-called right-brained and left-brained people, for instance, Ted explores the evidence for and against such things and points out some really interesting findings that might surprise you and maybe bust a few myths. Yeah, Ted knows what he's talking about. This is, um, by the way, if you go to science fiction conventions, this is the guy that calls himself speaker for lab animals on his uh, on his uh, lanyard tag. Um, he's a he's a really really smart guy. He works at uh, Wake Forest um, University as a as a researcher. Runs a lab over there, his lab. So, Training in Truth by Reiki Spore, Touchstone by Sonia Oren Liris, and Are We Really Just Wired Differently by Ted Roberts are all available to read and enjoy for free at Bain.com. And they are collected in the 2016 Free Short Story Anthology and the 2016 Free Nonfiction Anthology. These are two ebooks that are available for free download at BainEbooks.com. So check out this great stuff at Bain.com. Hey, we wanted to do a sweet little tribute this time to Valentine's Day, which is coming up soon. So without further ado, we present... Three, three lovable, lovable science fiction things, things we, we could, could think, think of. of. Three lovable science fiction things. Well, how about uh, cute, cute animals, animals, especially adorable puppies? <laughs> Who doesn't love adorable sweet puppies? What are your favorite science fiction dogs or dog-like pets? Or dragons. Or dragons. Um, we are excluding cats because I just don't want to talk about cats right now. <laughs> I feel there, the same way. Just for the moment, let's have one <laughs> segment with no cats. There are uh, the giant dogs, the soldiers ride in the general series by Raj Whitehall. Those are so adorable, and they can rip you to pieces, and they're really big, and they uh, can engage in a very frightening charge. How adorable. They're not horses. They're Clifford. <laughs> All right. We kind of like, I kind of like Lummox from, uh, or Lumix from uh, Heinlein Starbeast. He grows on you kind of literally. <laughs> A bit. Over generations. And, and you know, you never know. The way you treat your pets may be a test by extraterrestrials for whether or not they will destroy Earth. So next time your adorable pet looks up at you, give it a pat. You may be saving us all. And uh, what other can we think of? Well, we also do have a soft spot for Blood, the dog in Harlan Ellison's story, A Boy and His Dog, who you may know has a taste for long pig. So sweet. Yeah. I've always liked that story. And it, it's, it's well, maybe a it's a sweet Valentine's story you could give to your love. I, I don't <laughs> know about a, This that. is what's going to happen to you if you don't... Uh, Treat me right. Don't listen to Tony, it's a trick. Just never mind. Uh, uh, number two, adorable, adorable couples. couples. There are some great science fiction and fantasy couples and love stories, of course. Uh, right off the bat, I think of Aragorn and Arwen from The Lord of the Rings. That is a good one. Poor Eowyn, who gets the shaft. <laughs> Poor Eowyn. Well, yeah. she gets Faramir. Yeah, but I mean, she could have got the king. So yeah. Like, she gets like the, the steward's brother. Well, he becomes the steward. Yeah, I yeah, guess Faramir so. is a great character. Yeah, he's your he, favorite, right? He's one of my favorites in that in that series. Yeah, Arwen, of course, gives up her immortality like a fool. Yeah, I don't think that's a good deal. Go it always it. bothered me. <laughs> so. <laughs> okay, so uh, Aragorn and Arwen, um, Errol Vorkosigan and Cordelia Naismith, and uh, Lois Bujol's Vorkosigan saga. And we can add to that, now that Gentleman Joel and the Red Queen is out, um, we also have Cordelia and Oliver Joel as a as a sweet little couple with some interesting history. It, just a little bit of history, yeah. that's for sure. There's also a Paul and Chaney from Dune. Yeah, tell, tell me about that. That's your one of your favorite science fiction books. Dune right? is, I like Dune. But... Dune is my favorite science fiction book. Um but not really because of Paul and Cheney. Um, uh, it's... Well, this is Valentine's Day, so say something about. 
they go through some crap, right? They they, they do. They they lose they lose their son. Uh, then Cheney dies, and their kids are crazy. Um, they're 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 a long suffering couple. Um, and it never really, never really stops them from loving one another. Ah, uh, how adorable! And of course, there's that adorable, creepy threesome. When you watch the first Star Wars movie after watching the others, and you know Luke is falling for his own sister. Well, it's a love triangles, not a yeah. not a threesome. And I don't think Han's that open minded. <laughs> At least I. Ugh. I guess you're right. <laughs> I don't even want to think about that. Either. All right, and number three. <laughs> you yes. have done that yourself. No, I don't have a sister. No, that's not what I mean. No, <laughs> you, you caused this. I see. Okay. Trying to quote Revenge of the Sith. Who did you uh who did you claim as a teenager? Did you get to be Luke or Han? Luke. I see. He had a, he had a lightsaber. I claimed Han. Han is the better option now. Because he got Leia. Um, <laughs> yeah. He also wasn't an insufferable. Yeah, but Lord. he didn't have a lightsaber, so Yeah. Okay. Um uh, gifts. Gifts for Valentine's Day. Dead six. Um the <laughs> military men's adventure from Larry Correa and Mike Coopery has a guy named Michael Valentine in it. That's a bit of a stretch, don't you think? Yeah. Well, you know, for the for the guy that has everything, uh, Valentine happens to be a deadly sniper also in the book. Um, Definitely a stretch. And what Tony Weisskopf recommends to us all is... Um, as a, as a great Valentine's gift, is Gentleman Joel and the Red Queen by Lois Bujold and a box of chocolates. Unless your beloved is allergic to chocolate, in which case maybe you should give him or her um, Gentleman Joel and some raspberry fun dip. Or find someone who wants chocolates. Maybe Luke. <laughs> After he finds out. Uh, I walked into that. Some consolation. want to welcome Ben Bova to the podcast. Hi, Ben. Hi. Ben Bova has written more than 120 futuristic novels and nonfiction books and has been involved in science and high technology since the very beginning of the space age. President Emeritus of the National Space Society and a past president of the Science Fiction Writers of America. Uh, ben received the Lifetime Achievement Award of the Arthur C. Clarke Foundation in 2005 for uh, fueling mankind's imagination regarding the wonders of space, of outer space. Uh, six Hugo Award, time Hugo Award winner, all for editor, which we'll ask you about later. Um, articles, opinion pieces everywhere, all over the place. I mean, this is... Uh, this is the legendary Ben Bova. His latest solo novel is Mars Incorporated for Bane, The Billionaire's Club, and with Les Johnson, he's the author of Near Future Interplanetary Space Epic Rescue Mode. And now, Bane Books is now proudly putting out the collected short stories of Ben in a series of three volumes. These are The Best of Bova, Volume 1, 2, and 3, and The Best of Bova, Volume 1, is now out at booksellers everywhere. So, Ben, there are some great stories in this collection, and it includes a big range of types of science fiction stories. Um, I thought your introduction was interesting, kind of an explanation for why you and we you write science fiction and why we read science fiction. Can you just sort of talk about that in a general way at first? Well, I think every culture has storytellers. It seems important to human existence to be able to read or listen to stories, and see a world beyond the one you're in. Science fiction does this very, very well uh, by looking into the future. Uh, not every science fiction story is going to come true, but I'm sort of proud to say that some of the science fiction I've written is now history. And some of that history is, is even contained in this volume. Uh, it, it's an amazing stretch of years, the, the stories that are there. Tell us a little bit about your background. There's a story in the collection from a pretty young Bova called The Long Way Back. I believe it starts with that. Have you, mm -hmm. have you always been a writer, first of all? Or just tell us a little bit about how you got started, if you would. I was 
in 10th grade, and the uh, English class teacher, George Paravicini, say that I did and suggested that I come out for the school newspaper. Since he was the faculty advisor for the school newspaper, I took this as more than a hint, sort of a, a disguised command. So I went out for the school newspaper and found it wonderful. I enjoyed it. And I began my career after college uh, newspapering. But I was writing science fiction on the side all along. And as more and more of my stories got published, I moved into other areas away from newspapers. When the U.S. government announced it was going to try to launch an artificial satellite during the International Geophysical Year, this was, I think, 1956, I talked myself into a job with the company that was building the launching rocket. It was then called the Glenn L. Martin Aircraft Company. It is now Martin Marietta, one of the powerful aerospace corporations. So I've actually been involved in the space program for two years longer than NASA. <laughs> what were you doing when you first started at Martin Marietta or, or GL Martin? I was a, my title was Junior Technical Editor which uh, of the three words, only Junior really told the truth. Mm -hmm. I, looked, uh, I looked on the job as trying to translate what the engineers wrote into a language that ordinary people could understand. As it turned out, the most important part of my job was translating so that members of Congress could understand what the engineers are saying. How did you make the transition to becoming a science fiction editor? You were the first editor after John Campbell. Oh, I got drafted. At Analog. Yeah. How yeah, John Campbell died suddenly, a victim of his own, uh, well, I guess the word is arrogance. John never believed the Surgeon General's nonsense about cigarettes being bad for you. He suffered a fatal heart attack at the age of 71. Hmm. Um, Condé Nast Publications, which published Analog in those days, put up a search for a new editor and picked me, much to my shock. But it was great fun. The magazine prospered. And uh, frankly, you know, I took the job because I didn't want to see Analog go away. I didn't want to see it collapse. And I'm happy to say that I was able to not only keep it going, but to enlarge it, to make it uh, increase its circulation and move also into book publishing. Did How did you get at Omni? <laughs> oh, that was Bob Guccione's doing. Uh -huh. I was, I had decided to retire from editing after seven years at Analog. Guccione invited me to his home and he and the woman who became his wife, Kathy Keaton, showed me uh, what they're producing. They, they were starting a new magazine, a very slick magazine, which they called Nova. And it was a dream come true, you know, a big, slick, high-powered magazine dealing with all aspects of the future, including science fiction stories. But there was a little nagging doubt in my mind, Bova for Nova, it just bothered me. <laughs> well, before the first issue of their magazine could hit the newsstands, the Nova TV people up in Boston sued Guccione, claiming that he was stealing their good name. So they changed the name of the magazine to Omni. I accepted the job of science fiction editor, and some wise guy said, well, now you should change your name to Romney. <laughs> well, we're glad you didn't do that. <laughs> very well. <laughs> it all worked out very well. I must say, Bob Guccione and Kathy Keaton were the best publishers I have ever worked with. Uh, Bob believed in Omni, and, and Kathy was really the inspiration behind founding the magazine. And they backed it with everything they had. You published a lot of uh, 
people who went on to wonderful careers. Um, one in particular was uh, Orson Scott Carr. Didn't you uh, discover Ender's Game while you were an editor? Yes. Was that an analog or? That is that analog. It was came in as uh, an unsolicited submission, you know, in the slush pile, and it was beautiful. Um, the ending was a little weak. I sent it back to Scott and suggested a stronger ending. He made the story even better and actually went on to establish a not just a career but an industry for himself. Yeah. Well, th that story sort of turns on the ending, so he has a lot he owes you a lot. Actually. Well. Well, what um so did you write during the time you were an active editor at magazines and books and publishing? Yes. How did you do that? How just physically did you do that? Got up early in the morning, wrote for an hour or so, and then went off to work. My philosophy was in those days, when I had a daytime job, if I'm going to fall asleep, it'll be on the boss's time, not mine. Mm -hmm. So, the very first story in the collection is a is a product of of your youth, um, and it's but it's all it's pretty accomplished. Um, that story is the long way back. We were just mentioning it. It's from the 1960 Amazing. Um, we're in a post-apocalyptic world. Um, and Tom is in space working on a power-beaming satellite, That your, your main character there. This is pretty advanced yeah. stuff for 1960. I mean, this is like... Not if you read science fiction. The idea of the, the satellite that could... Um, Collect so I guess it would be collecting solar energy and and sending it to Earth. Is um, solar power satellite? Yeah. yeah. Um, that was a, a fortunate um, piece of work. So in the story, Tom, yeah, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. Tom's he's he's not a happy camper. Um, this is another sort of Bova theme in a lot of your stories. He's a historian and he's being forced to work with engineers. And there's this this um, friction between them, right? Yeah, Tom is a historian, and, and they put him in this satellite just to do monkey work, to put the pieces together. The, the pieces of the satellite are orbiting, and they need somebody to assemble them, which he does under control from the ground. And uh, he's very upset about just being essentially a, a robot, but a smart one. And they really figure he's expendable. Exactly. There's a, there's a wonderful twist of the story, which we won't reveal, that um, it, that shows that he's he's not such an automaton after all. Um, the very next story in the collection, Inspiration, is its title, is one of my favorites. This is this time travel piece you did. It's kind of an exploration of the relation of science and science fiction embodied in in several well-known historical characters and a cameo at the end that's chilling. Um, can you tell us a little bit, can you set that story up a little? Oh, sure. It occurred to me that when H.G. Wells produced his first novel, The Time Traveler, uh, Albert Einstein was like 17 years old. And I thought if I could get Einstein to read Wells's novel, it might well inspire Albert to produce ultimately the uh, theories of relativity. The idea of time as a dimension um, would have uh, uh, enchanted Albert. Yeah. So I produced a scenario. I needed a time traveler to make it all work and got them all together in the city of uh, Linz uh, with uh, Lord Calvin. Lord Calvin, excuse me, <clears throat> who was the really the, the guardian of orthodox physics, as it was known in those days. And he thought this whole idea of time travel was bosh. And H.G. Wells is embarrassed as hell because being a, a common Englishman, a commoner, he wants to please Lord Kelvin. And he's falling all over himself saying, well, of course, you know, it's just a story. It's just fiction. 
and Kelvin grumbles on yes, but um, the time traveler's purpose is to avoid the obliteration of the Earth, and he keeps mentioning that there are several time um, paths, paths through time that lead not only to Einstein being wiped out by the Nazis but the whole human race being wiped out by nuclear war. And he's trying to thread his way to get Albert Einstein to the history, the line of history that we recognize, the line of history that came out about for us. It ain't perfect, but it's better than obliteration. Mm-hmm. And there's um, the, a subplot of the story is that, that the owners of the cafe they're in don't like that Einstein's a, a Jew eating there or, or drinking there. German German cafe, <clears throat> and the woman who actually runs it refuses to serve them, even though Albert is just a teenage boy, and the rest of the people around the table are ostensibly British. But uh, she's she's a, a toughie. Do you um think that there's sort of an analogy in the story between because Kelvin's like this old scientist whose science fiction is Bosch um, to him. and But the idea that science fiction inspires a young new generation of scientists, even if it's completely right, um, which Wells certainly wasn't, uh, it, it serves a, yeah. a, a real cultural function that way. It seems that's what the story is perhaps implying. Uh, that's one of the, one of the themes. Yeah, but science fiction can have real-world effects, and of course it has. Um, just about all the marvelous wonders we see around us originated in the idea in the mind of a science fiction writer. I always get a kick out of reading a newspaper article or a TV piece about, it sounds like science fiction, but it's actually true. <laughs> Well, hell, shoes sounded like science fiction once upon a time. The yeah. world we live in is a world of science fiction devices. So you, you think storytellers kind of uh, are a vanguard, perhaps? Yes, they can be. And we, we have some function. So speaking of, of great storytelling, um, one of the two characters you use pretty often make their appearance in this collection. One of them is Sam Gunn. Um, we don't actually meet him in the story in the collection directly. Instead, there's a, this giant crystal statue being set to him being set up on the moon, and it frames kind of a humorous story with, within. Um, so Sam is kind of this genius scoundrel. Can you tell us a bit about Sam and his life and times and, and how this initial story came about and, and why you wanted to write more Sam Gunn stories? editing analog, I uh, occasionally try to give ideas to writers. One of the ideas was about a group of astronauts stranded on the moon and what they do to survive. Um, every writer I talked to about that idea just sort of gave me a blank stare. So eventually I wrote the story myself. And Sam was the central character. He. Sam is a sawed-off, loudmouth, skirt-chasing entrepreneur who makes and loses fortunes in space the way we change shoes. Um, and Sam has suggested dozens of stories over the years, and most of them are have some touch of humor in them. Do you? Uh, so you you've come back to that character a lot. It, it's it's kind of a a science fiction or a literary staple, Falstaff and and uh, various other characters I'm thinking of. You got yourself into this. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm, I was thinking, I'm trying to remember Paul Anderson's guy. <laughs> that, that, I can't remember his name, the character's name. Um, Van Reen, wasn't it? Yeah, 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 him. <laughs> he's he's a, an example of that type in science fiction. We, we meet another important character in the this collection, which is uh, Chet Kinsman, um, who there are, what, three Kinsman saga novels? Uh, 
Yeah, there's uh, a novel called Millennium, which introduced Kinsman. And then I had done several short stories about Kinsman, and I took those and added material and produced a, uh, a novel. Uh, and then I put the two novels together, called it the Kinsman Saga. Thanks. It's the it's the whole th yeah. I really like Millennium. So Chad Kinsman, he's kind of a perhaps a Ben Bova alter ego. If you became, uh, if you lived in that world where where you could have been an astronaut, um, an explorer. Kinsman is much more capable than I am. Uh, Believe me, uh, Kinsman is much more capable and uh, much more driven. He's um. You take him. I mean, it, throughout you you examine him at different points in his life. Um, in three stories in this collection, and and throughout, he's a he's a big character in your mental landscape. It would seem. Yeah, he's an idealist, and he changes the world. So, well, the first story is a bit salacious. Um, so, uh, about the zero G club. What, what do you mean the zero G club? <laughs> yes. What what might that be? Well, in World War One, Flyers started the uh, Mile High Club, which, according to a veteran of World War One aviation, he told me the Mile High Club specifically calls for making it with an Army nurse while circling St. Paul's Cathedral at exactly 5,240 feet or as close as your altimeter will tell you. So now we're in the 1960s. Human beings are beginning to go into space, and a bunch of the guys get an idea for a zero-G club, making it in weightlessness. And Kinsman becomes very much involved in that. He's sent up with... Um, with uh a beautiful reporter and uh, sort of a chaperone. Uh, yeah. And one of this, the story contains one of my favorite lines, perhaps in all of science fiction, which is, um, <laughs> I will quote to you, uh, the only trouble with zero G, he mumbled, is that you can't hang yourself. <laughs> I'm glad you like that line. Uh, it's, it's very evocative. I'm very proud. <laughs> so, but the um, the thing about the story is it it does sort of start out to be this this body sort of thing, but it it, it takes a serious turn, um, right? I mean, it's not a. It's about human beings. Yeah. Not about caricatures. Yeah. And there's uh, it it the guiding principle of the story is the second law of thermodynamics. No matter what you want, you're going to have to pay for it, and you're going to have to pay more than it's really worth. That's just a law of the universe. And Kinsman finds that out Yeah, this, in orbit. This is his very early days, too, when his, his character is sort of forming. Um, I guess the, the next two Kinsman stories in the collection are a bit even more somber, as it were. Um, one is Test in Orbit, um, and this Kinsman's character, up till now, he's, he has this, at the beginning of the story, this idea that going into space is, is really all he lives for, because it's clean, he's separate from, from all the things that weigh on humans, and, and um, he loves that about it, but the, this story is where that changes for him, right? Yeah, yeah. Can you sort of set up the the beginning of it? It's um, who has put somebody's put up a, a possible military satellite, right? That he has to check out. Sent on a, he sent on a quick reaction mission to check out a new Russian satellite that is very large and could be either house, housing a nuclear weapon or some other kind of weapon, and he's up there to check it out. And the Russians, of course, send up a cosmonaut to work in or on the satellite, and the two come into conflict. When did you write this story? Was it a 70s story? or? Oh, I think it was still the 60s. The six, there was this a, a real thought that space was going to become militarized 
in the 60s, wasn't there? I mean, why didn't it go that way more? It will. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for reassuring. It's, why do we have navies? Yeah. Why do the nations of the world have navies? To protect their interests at sea. And as we get more and more valuable stuff in orbit, factories, cities, all sorts of things, they're going to have to be protected against people who don't see the world the same way we do. Mm -hmm. So there will be military presence in space, just as there's military presence here on Earth. Yeah. When we get past the the initial wide-eyed exploration phase and start the trading phase, perhaps, like discovery of the new world? When we start putting enough assets in orbit so that they're worth protecting, not just uh, robot satellites that you can replace, but you put in a, a major industrial center in orbit, you're going to have to protect it. Because the idiots who blow up themselves and, and people here on Earth aren't going to want to blow up a satellite. What a coup that would be for ISIS. Yeah, I don't even want to think about it. <laughs> but we must think about it, I guess. Yes. That's the military's job, to think about it and to try to protect us against it. The final Kinsman story in... Uh... This particular volume, the the Best of Bova volume one, is uh, 15 Miles, which is about uh, a rescue on the moon. And there are great character conflicts in this, as as in uh, all Bova stories. You you always you you have characters that that have some friction between them very frequently in your stories, and I always appreciate that. Uh, this is also a good old fix it story. Yeah. Yeah. And, Something you know, something that happened. The the events of um, of the the other kinsman story come back and and play a part uh, in this one as well. Yep. What is some the story is that? Um, well, basically, fifteen miles is a, a look at how you can drag an injured comrade across fifteen miles of open territory on the moon save the person's life and whether you really want to save that person's life because that person might ruin your life once you get him back to safety so the conflict is there yeah it's it's a classic uh it's a classic both um man against nature and man against man all pitted together it's it's a great story yep um there is so many different um, science fiction genres represented in in this collection. There, a favorite of mine is to touch a star. Um, oh, I'm glad you like that one. Yeah, it's just you know, it's that sense of wonder thing. I like, I really love that. The uh, it combines a very large object story, um, <laughs> yes, which is uh, a vital sphere and interstellar travel via. Um, hibernation which appears in a lot of your stories um yeah it's the only way i can get around the uh, speed of light problem you say in your introduction to that story that if you took away the science aspects of to touch a star the story wouldn't exist right yeah yeah that's i think a, a classic idea that uh, the science in that story is so vital to the plot and if you took away the science, there would be no story. For those of, I mean, a lot, most science fiction listeners will know what a Dyson Sphere is. Can you explain it? Oh, a Dyson Sphere is named after Freeman Dyson, uh, one of the brightest people the human race has ever produced. Spent many, many years at uh, the uh, Princeton Institute for Advanced Studies. Dyson figured that a really advanced civilization will want to use up every bit of energy that its star produces, so they will build a sphere encasing the star, a sphere probably at the distance from the star as the home planet of the intelligent race is. So when we're here on Earth 
looking at the stars through telescopes, and we see a large object radiating in the infrared. It might well be a Dyson sphere, and there might well be a very advanced intelligent race living on its inner surface. Mm. But the star in the the uh, Dyson sphere in the story is is not a young, clean, newly <laughs> constructed one, right? Right. That's right. It has that. That's the other, you know, the sense of wonder of the this thing has been around, and and your description of its surface from uh, when it is evocative. I thought one of the great things I liked about the story. I want a recording of this interview. I mean, you, I haven't received so much praise in so short a time. <laughs> well, I bought the collection, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> I must like the stories. <laughs> so. Um, so Bain has put out a collection of, uh, uh, well, let's talk about the ancient human star empire that I, earlier in the volume, we have this full blown, uh, story about a very old human star empire and its emperor, um, which is the last decision. And this one is another one about humans affecting a star. Um, the story revolves around whether or not to, to save a particular star, right? Yes. How old is this empire? I mean, it seems humanity is, is really old in this story as a species. Um, I, I, I envision this as being, you know, perhaps a thousand years in the future, yeah. maybe even a, a good deal less. The emperor uh, is patterned after a character from a Gordon Dixon story, and Gordy kindly gave me permission to use the character and develop him further. Yeah, you, you talk about that in the introduction. Um, was Yes. Was this part of, this wasn't a Milford thing, was it, or was it? Uh, I first met Gordon Dixon at a Milford Science Fiction Writers Conference, and we attended many together. What were those like, by the way? I've always wanted to have an inside. Well, for about eight days, you read science fiction. You had your story analyzed by your fellow writers. You talked science fiction. You breathed science fiction. It was an intense eight days. And many, many lasting friendships were formed. What was it like to be critiqued by Damon Knight? <laughs> <laughs> well, scary. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I was I was a pretty young writer at that time, and most of these people, you know, were giants in the field, and they uh, didn't treat my stories very lovingly. Yeah. But but I learned a lot. Did. Uh... Well, uh, that's cool. Um, <laughs> the, the band's put out a collection of your humorous stories too, the laugh lines. There's, there's one story in here that um, I don't know if it just appeals to me because I have a somewhat grim sense of humor, um, but I found it pretty amusing. Which was "Men of Goodwill." Um, oh, <laughs> so this representative from Earth has been sent to the moon to find out how international brotherhood works there. Can you tell us a little about that? We don't want to give the story away, but it's, it's pretty, um, pretty. Well, the UN official is sent to the moon because apparently the Russians and Americans living in bases side by side live in full peace and amity. Whereas on earth, there's, Anger and, and violence everywhere. I mean, uh, one of the lines in the story is that U UN representatives are, are punching it out at the UN building. Um, and this guy is there to sing, how come on the moon there's peace? And he finds out that the peace comes from the laws of physics. <laughs> the Russians and Americans shot the shit out of each other's bases and being on the moon the bullets that missed which were most of them 
just went into orbit around the moon and come back again every so many hours. <laughs> so you have to live in peace or else you're going to kill each other permanently. Yeah. I think that that is analogous to the only way that humanity is ever going to achieve peace, it seems to me, somehow. No, the only way humanity is going to achieve broad and lasting peace is to make everybody rich, make everybody wealthy, so that they don't have to kill each other. You don't have to steal the other guy's wealth. Yeah, won't you always end, even if you're incredibly rich and in comparison, if, if there's any difference between you and the, and the next guy, won't you want to take it from him? I hope not. You know, how much is enough? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a hopeful view. <laughs> well, one story that's pretty straight out of, of today's issue um, that still works pretty well is a story. Um, yeah, you you know I could find it in a in a magazine today, and the science wouldn't seem obsolete or anything like that. At first, uh, I was a little let's see which oh the old timers game. That's the this one is told as a sort of legal inquest. Well, that's about baseball. Yeah. And it's about performance enhancing. Um, yes. And had, had you seen a performance that changed? Was this maybe the first performance enhancing uh, sports story, science fiction sports story? Oh, I doubt it. Yeah. Doubt it. But the difference is, in this story, the performance enhancements come from the body itself. All they're doing is making the athlete younger. The athlete is playing the way he did when he was 20, even if he's 40. Yeah. So, so he's not playing better, but he's... Uh, so you can't really say that you're making them superhuman. But right. They never get those knee injuries. And... I'm not, yeah, I'm not, I'm not superhuman. I'm just young. Yeah. Even when you're 50, and who knows how long... Yeah. The I mean the story that's the that's the science fiction element in the story but the story is really about this old catcher who's who's um who's going through his career and he's the first that that sort of um tried out these technologies, right? Yeah. Yeah. And he's a great character because he's oblivious to the fact that they're trying to you know, he just wants to tell his story, right? Yeah. And the baseball moguls are dead set against any change, but they're forced to accept it. Yeah. Another story that um, was definitely one of my favorites in the collection was The Man Who Hated Gravity. Um, at first, I was a little put off by this at first because it sounded goofy. The great Ronaldo, the trapeze artist. Um, but it turned out it's a very touching story about what science can and can't do to sort of overcome the inevitabilities of, uh, of nature, natural law. And accepting the limitations. Yeah. Can you uh, talk about that story a little bit? It's, uh, I mean, there's not really a, a huge point other than the, uh, the wonderful emotional and character-drivenness. So, didn't you say that this is a story that you did not write directly from outline? Oh, I never write from Alpine. But this is a story that began with my own knee being injured, and I got to hate gravity because I couldn't get around very well. So the great Ronaldo is in part me. But he's a much better trapeze artist than I'll ever be. (laughs) Well, uh, in the story, he goes to the moon um, and experiences different gravities. And his whole world revolves around uh, defying gravity or not. Um, yeah. You say in uh, in the book, actually, you, you talk about your, your writing uh, technique. Um, you say that that you don't plot novels, but you plot stories more? Short stories, yes. Short stories have to be succinct, and you have to know where the end is before you start writing. Otherwise, you'll wander all over the map. 
So how do you com how do you go about how do you compose a novel? What's the different way? I start. I I I might spend years and years developing a pair of characters and put them in conflict and let them tell the story. Do you feel um, like they are the by the time you have these characters going that they're that that in a way they're controlling where the story goes by um oh yes sort of. there's a um the center of the book is taken up by the novella um a a, a country for old man it's kind of a reflection on old, old old age um yeah the the story revolves around um, characters that are in friction with type A sorts bumping into each other, um, and there's cryosleep. Is there a, is there a country for old men out there in the cosmos? There's something for everybody out there. It's a big universe. But really, an important part of that story is my wrestling with my computer chess game. <laughs> Damn computer never forgets anything uh -huh. and beats me pretty soundly. This story's a pretty uh, recent one, right? It appeared in Going Interstellar, as I recall, that that great collection lesson Jack McDivitt put out. Think so? Yes, it's a recent story. Yeah. What are you um, What are you working on these days? Uh, actually, I'm working on a short story. Um, I just wrapped up a novel, and before I start the next one, I'm doing this little short story. Yeah. Well, do you often do that, sort of, um, to rest your novel writing muscles, or does it vary? It, it works out that way. It's a matter of scheduling your time. You know, when I'm working on a novel, I don't do anything else. But when it's finished, I can relax a little, do a little short story, perhaps, and then get ready for the next long haul. What do you like the most about writing short stories as opposed to anything? Why, why are your short stories, um, why do you keep doing it? After you started publishing novels, you kept writing short stories. Yeah, um, I really can't tell you. They're just some ideas that are short story ideas. Mm -hmm. Work as novels. And uh, usually it's the characters prodding me. It's like you've got a zillion voices in your head, and they're all saying, let me out. Show the world what I am or who I am. Well, we hope it, that uh, continues for a long time. The book is The Best of Bova, Volume 1. There will be Volume 2 uh, this summer, and Volume 3, I believe, we're probably going to schedule in uh, spring 2017. We haven't decided. That's tentative. Um, it's wonderful stuff, and it's uh, at Booksellers now. Ben, thank you very much for talking with us. Tony, you warmed my heart. Thank you so much. Now we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky. This portion of Under a Graveyard Sky is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you are not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. Now here is another segment of John Ringo's novel, of zombie infestation and the heroic humans who fight back, determined to pull the world from disaster and humanity itself from the brink of annihilation. It's all taking place under a graveyard sky. Chapter 25 I'm starting to think there was a mutiny, Steve said, stepping over the corpse. This man had been wearing body armor, and he would have been facing a similarly clad man farther down the corridor. Both had rifles by their bodies, one an M4, the other an AK variant, and there were casings scattered along the corridor. 
Looks that way, Fontana said, turning the smaller man over. His legs and face had been chewed off, but the armor had kept his torso intact. Except for the decomposition. Ugh. What? Faith asked, looking down. Clean it up and it's pretty good gear. Well, except for the holes that are in it. It wasn't the body or the gear I was going ugh about, Fontana said. Socorro Security, Evan Socorro's company. Context? Steve asked. There are contractors and contractors, Fontana said, continuing the sweep. Despite its rep, Blackwater wasn't actually that bad. They had something resembling quality control. Triple canopy? Very good. At least they're primary operators. And they pick good associate operators. Primary? Associate? Faith said. Bosses and subordinates? Generally, but not exactly, Fontana said, banging on a hatch. You can call it racist, but primaries are all from developed nations. Generally. Associates are guys hired from developing nations. Associates are cheaper and generally not as well trained. Not always. Some groups use former Gurkhas for associates or even primaries. There's one run by a former Gurkha that does shipboard security. There was no response, so he entered the compartment. There were several bodies in there, but none had been chewed. Some men, some women. Most had been shot in the head. So what's with Sikoro? Steve asked. I won't get into my personal issues with former Special Forces Major Evan Sikoro, Fontana said. Although I had personal issues with sock breath, which term came from his tendency to fillet hires from SOCOM. Pretty much anybody who worked for him did, but he finally got a chain of command that officially, in writing, asked how an asshole and a not particularly competent asshole got to be a major in the groups in the first place, and he got out and started his own security company. He had some ass-buddy primaries that were mostly not former military. Just call them gun geeks. Some of those guys are fine. A lot of them weren't military because they couldn't make the grade. How soon do I get to kill somebody couldn't make the grade? That's the kind he liked to hire. Then, instead of hiring good associate contractors like, say, former Peruvian mountain commandos or El Salvadorians or even some of the SA or Angolan blecks, he picked West Africans. Bloody hell, Steve said, looking around a corner. Seriously? More here. Is that bad? Faith asked. I guess so. Think child soldiers whose military experience consisted of rape, loot, pillage, and burn, Steve said. Again, there are good West African troops. For values of good, Fontana said. I think good for even their elite is a stretch. But the majority are pretty damn bad, Steve said. By any definition of bad you care to name. Competence, ability, discipline. I'm surprised anybody would hire a group like that. They were cheap, Fontana said, shrugging. He didn't pay his primaries at full standard rate, and his associates got paid dirt, so he could shave a few bucks off a contract. Looks like the client got what he paid for, Faith said, pointing to a hole in the bulkhead. Steel? I'd say 762? Yeah, Fontana said, staring at one of the female bodies. I think these were potential infected that were terminated. I don't see any bites, but that might not have been how they were chosen. And the women have been all riped, Steve said, from the ligature marks. Oh, God, Faith said, grimacing. If one holds his state on the basis of mercenary arms, he will never be firm or secure. Because they are disunited, ambitious, without discipline, unfaithful, gallant among friends, vile among enemies, no fear of God, no faith with men, and one defers ruin, insofar as one defers the attack. And in peace, you are despoiled by them. In war, by the enemy, Steve said. Duh in his quotes, Faith said. Which one is this one? Machiavelli's the prince, Fontana said. I know some good guys who were contractors. And some good companies. 
so you're facing a zombie apocalypse where every reasonable person foresees a potentially permanent breakdown in law and order, and you bound onto your mega yacht, load up with models, then hire a security company filled with freaking West Africans? Steve said. Well, no, Fontana said. That was stupid. You might as well put a stake around your neck and go jump in a tiger pit. So, Faith said, guy smart enough to build and run a billion-dollar company. How come he makes that mistake? Situation he's in is a tough call, Fontana said. I mean, in normal times, no way you'd have to deal with a takeover by your security. There's laws. Bad things will happen to them. Post-APOC, don't ask me what I would have done if I was the guy running security. Had all the guns and all the people who knew how to use them, and the boss was now utterly useless? I'll keep that in mind, Steve said. Different situation entirely, Fontana said. And I'm not Socorro. I'm not talking about that, Faith said. I can see that problem. I mean, I've been nervous about all the new people. Not you, Falcon, but, you know, who do you trust? I guess I'm wondering how a guy like Mickerberg could have picked somebody even I would know not to trust. You're 13, but you've got the background, Steve said. Your mum and I gave it to you. I don't know a lot about the guy, but I got the impression of intelligent liberal, 1H. To them, everybody who knows how to use a gun looks the same. There's no difference between Sergeant Fontana and Coney in Congo. He probably just told one of his staff to find a security company that could supply security and picked one of the lowest bidders. We're all baby killers, after all, Fontana said, banging on a hatch. Hello? Any babies to kill in there? If there are any survivors, that would not be very reassuring, Steve pointed out. No, just zombies, Fontana said, looking in. Dead zombies. Sure there were zombies? Faith asked. They're naked and some of them are chewed, Fontana said, closing and marking the hatch. I hope like hell they were. Da, I'm starting to think that zombies aren't the worst things in the world. The cabin on the top deck was nearly the size of the main saloon, with a panoramic view of the surrounding ocean. A massive in-deck hot tub, a wet bar big enough for a public bar, and a bed that could hold 40. At a guess, there had once been a good bit of gilding, from the looks of where stuff had been ripped out. There was also a huge stack of mountain house boxes and five-gallon containers of water. The solid steel door had been cut through by a welding torch. On the bed were ten women, naked, their hands bound behind their backs and shot in the head. At the head of the bed was a male corpse, unbound, also naked, with the top of his head blown off. All of the bodies had been gnawed by ferals. But they hadn't died from the zombies. Major Socorro, Fontana said, smiling thinly. We meet again. How do you know it's him? Faith asked. The body's face had been chewed off. Right height, right build, and I know how he was about women, Fontana said. There's rough, and then there's batshit. Hold up to wait for the zombies to take over. Steve said, probably with the pick of the prettier women. Then when the mutineers burned through the door, he shot them and himself. Looks that way, Fontana said, wandering around the suite. What's missing are the weapons and ammo. And the guilt, Steve said, pointing to where something had been prized from the walls. You know, modern sport fishes don't sink very readily. They've got buoyant foam inserted everywhere. Zombies are taking over. The mercs load up the one away boat with all the gold and all the guns, Fontana said. Overload the boat? Which explains why it went down like a stone, Steve said, shaking his head. You know, Fontana mused, billionaire like this probably had real gold. I mean, bars, coin, jewelry, Steve said, and not costume. Did we just drop a treasure ship in 5,000 feet of water? Faith said. Please tell me we didn't drop a treasure ship in 5,000 feet of water. That was another segment in our complete audiobook serialization of Under a Graveyard Sky by John Ringo. 
And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com, to Christopher Rocchio, thank you. Thank you. And to, or Rocchio, sorry. Yeah, either and way works. to uh, podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a Dyson Sphere surrounding an entire galaxy for ultimate absorption of all our thanks and praise to Ben Bova, whose collected stories, The Best of Bova, Volume 1, is at booksellers everywhere. Happy Valentine's Day, you lovely people. And please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. Keep reaching for the stars. The Bane Free Radio Hour is brought to you by Bane Books Audio Drama. Presenting dramatized audio plays of the best science fiction and fantasy with a professional cast and cinema quality soundtracks. Now available, Eric Flint's Islands, based on the novella by Eric Flint. Also available, Larry Correa's Detroit Christmas, based on the novella by Larry Correa, set in the world of the Grim Noir Chronicles at BaneEbooks.com. Just put Islands and Detroit Christmas in the search bar and enter a world of listening pleasure. Bane Books Audio Drama. Oh, oh, oh.